Welcome to the first episode of Cardiac Exchange. And of course, we kick off this podcast series with two distinguished guests that we have today here. Um, and we have Dr. Jean Grossi from New York, and we have Kendra Group from Emory in Atlanta. Um, Emory Atlanta was actually the last visit that I could make to the United States where I saw Kendra there before COVID started. And that, of course, will also be one of the topics that we are going to discuss today. But first, before we start the discussion, let me ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. Maybe we start, Kendra, with you first. Yeah, and Peter, I remember that visit. It was great to have you out here. And it was that moment when everyone was like, it's only a matter of time and they're going to shut us all down. And so it's great to see you again. And I can't wait to see you in person. But um, yes, my name is Kendra Grubb and I'm an adult cardiac surgeon. And I'm the surgical director of the Structural Heart and Valve Center at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Gene Grassi. I'm an adult cardiac surgeon in New York. I spent half my life at the university hospital, the other half of my life in a veterans administration hospital. And uh, basically my little niche is training people, training residents, training other surgeons around the country in advanced techniques. And my sort of hobby and specialty over the last 20 plus years has been uh, robotic mitral valve surgery that I do on a daily basis with my colleague, uh, DDA Lumet. So um, it keeps us, keeps me very busy. Can imagine. So were you also busy during the last year uh, when COVID started, uh, Gene? And, and uh, I just spoke with Alec Patterson, uh, you know, the editor of the journal uh, from the annals. He said, you know, I get so many manuscripts nowadays because, you know, a lo lot of people had more time to do research and write papers. So he's overwhelmed with, with research papers. Um, but what did you do during COVID? So basically in the beginning of March, I, I felt that we had to do as many cases as possible uh, before everything hit, because we usually have a, about a two-month backlog, and we got maybe about halfway through that, and we were just shut down completely. We were pretty hard hit in Manhattan. Uh, the street in between the two hospitals was just full of refrigerator trucks full with dead bodies. Our residents basically all got COVID. We didn't lose any residents. We've, we lost some attendings. During that time, basically it was all ICU care, traking people, walking around in total protection, traking and uh, ECMO. And one of my colleagues, uh, Dean Smith, made a tremendous effort and they had, what, 27 people on ECMO in those first three months, uh, which was a tremendous commitment. They had pretty excellent outcomes. They had, what, about 75%, you know, survival to discharge, stuff like that. But it was just a tremendous effort of doing that. Intensive, I guess. Is it yes, very labor intensive uh, from a resource utilization, from a nursing utilization, from a bed utilization. You know, we had one person in the hospital for three months. That really changes the focus of the practice, uh, you know, and it took a while to be able to recoup. I, I think I personally focused you know, supervising the residents doing that because I'm old and fat. They didn't want me in there bronking people because I was a high risk person. They thought I was going to go. So I was sort of sheltered in the back. So I, I actually took my time doing less research, but learning big data techniques or, or uh, pushing forward my big data analysis techniques to, uh, to be able to 
have more insight and to be able to better mine our experience of what we've done and be able to understand that. So I, that was my personal learning during it, but it took us until, you know, until September, until that phase was over. It was pretty sobering. Pretty, so pretty the big sobering. data, that's interesting, Gene. Is, so what do you think of it now? What, how can we use it in the hospital? Well, I, I think the problem is there's a big divide between people who understand the clinical problems and people who control the data. And I'm, I'm a lucky person. I, I, my parents sent me to summer camp to learn to program computers in 1967. So I, I've had a fair amount of programming experience and data manipulation experience. So I'm lucky. So I spent a lot of time working with my colleagues. So they'll come to me and they say, you know, Gene, we got Epic, you know, Epic has everything, but mm -hmm. what do we learn from Epic? Basically nothing, you know, because Epic was a bookkeeping program built by bookkeepers for bookkeepers. Uh, but there are data backends to it. And so it allow people to, to basically mine their data and understand what they've done. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a very, very, very powerful tool uh, to understand even learning what we experienced from COVID and stuff like that. So that was my personal growth area was to learn that. If we have another pandemic, I'm going to tack on quantum computing to that. But uh, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the next, got my homework assignment for the next right, pandemic. Right. Yeah, thanks. So Kendra, what, what have you been doing in uh, during the COVID period? Well, during COVID, it was very interesting. Um, we uh, are usually four surgeons um, here at the Midtown campus where I am based. And for various reasons of me being um, the least at risk of dying from COVID and the least risk of dragging it home and giving it to my family, um, I, uh, I ended up being the one who was manning the, the hospital for two months straight, came in every day, was with the residents. We were re redeployed as the line service and the Bronx service and the, you name it, we did it. Um, and then took care of everything that came through the door. And it was very interesting because we started seeing presentations that, you know, were so delayed, things that were pre-PCI, the number of, um, you know, delayed MIs and VSDs were something that I'm, I know that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. Um, I didn't necessarily train in an era where, you know, there was such a thing as a door to STEMI time, um, you know, a door to PCI time, excuse me, in a STEMI, door to yeah. balloon. Wow, why am I struggling with that? A door to balloon time of 90 minutes. And, and that was the norm for from the first eight years of my career. Um, and then to come up with patients who had been sitting at home after their MI for a week five days or so, and they finally presented when they couldn't walk across the room because they were in heart failure. Um, and so that was a big learning experience. But it was also a big opportunity for us. Um, you know, with the structural heart team, we were already very nimble and we were next day discharge, no anesthesia team. And we also, um, like Dr. Grossi was saying, had this big backlog of patients that we wanted to get through. And these patients weren't going to wait um, and they were afraid to come to the hospital. And so we had to learn to pivot. And we actually came up with a same day discharge protocol where the, the families couldn't be with the patients, but they could wait in the car. They would drop them off in the morning. We would do their TAVR valve. They would recover. They would meet a protocolized criteria and they would get in the car and go home. And then our, and then our APPs would follow up with them in the clinic. 
And um, we actually we actually published this because it was actually a really good pathway during this time where we had a bed shortage, we had problems with patients not wanting to come to the hospital. We could completely isolate their, their entire experience away from our COVID population because they never actually went into our hospital area. They went to our outpatient center, went to our cath lab and back to the outpatient center. And it was one strategy that we learned that frankly, we've, we've now passed on to other things. So Watchman cases, now this is how they're routinely done. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of invented it for our TAVR patients. It works very well for Watchmen. And we continue to have patients go down this pathway if they're reluctant to stay in the hospital and they meet the protocol and, and requirements. So I think we learned a lot about our ability to be nimble and to pivot and to use what resources we have and still be able to take very good care of the patients. Wow. Yeah, that's great, great uh, success that you have made here and, and great ideas that you share now with other people that can adopt this as well. So is there a backlog, do you think? And so in Tavare hurt you that you could do still, you know, quite a lot of procedures. Uh, cardiac surgery, of course, you always need an intensive care bed. Um, so is there a backlog for patients there? We ended up with quite a backlog for cardiac surgery. I think we finally caught up, um, you know, about the middle of last month, we finally caught up. Um, but again, there are many patients now, and the problem isn't necessarily the backlog, but it's the backlog to the cardiologist. So they weren't seen by the cardiologist. Now they're, you know, six months behind where we would normally see them, and their presentations are much later. And so I'm finding fewer and fewer patients who I can just see in clinic one time, schedule their surgery, and then do their operation. The routine cabbage. Um, is, is not the norm anymore. The majority of the patients are being sent as transfers from other facilities with very delayed presentations. I transferred a patient yesterday for what was supposed to be a routine cabbage. He arrived here and his BNP is 9,000. I mean, wow. he's in heart failure. And he's been in heart failure for weeks, but he never went and saw anyone. And so now instead of being able to do his bypass surgery tomorrow, he gets to spend the weekend on the heart failure service getting a tune-up before going to the operation. And instead of his STS risk of mortality being 1%, it's 6%. Wow. And so that's the problem we have now. It's not necessarily a backlog in terms of they were on, they're in the queue already to have surgery. They're just making it to us, but their presentation is six months too late. Right, right. So they're more complex. And Jean, have you used similar things in in New York? Are still patients still afraid to come to the hospital at this moment? Or uh, I I think we're just at a point getting better for that. But I'm just to amplify on what Kendra was saying. It's not only the patients; it's the family. So it takes a big leap for the patients to want to come to a hospital and make that. But now if you're telling them, hey, you're going in the door yourself, you can't get anybody. In a way, to being a little bit of a cynical person, it was sort of nice instead of walking out afterwards and being tackled by 10 family members, how does my loved one doing? You know, you just make one phone call, one, one uh, conference call and you get everybody in one shot and you're not tackled. But, but it's a barrier. It's a barrier to the patient. It's a barrier to the families to, counsel and help their loved ones accept to come in so it's it's a real item even now today 
person I operated on this morning, the, the wife says I, I was going to supposed to meet the son up in the waiting area and said, oh, no, the hospital rules still one visitor only can't have two visitors in the building. Uh, and the rules change from day to day. It, it just makes it more complicated. I don't even attempt to know the rules. I say, you know, go to a rule expert. They'll tell you what the current rules are and stuff like that. <laughs> but it is a barrier. And I think it makes it more stressful. And I think the onus is on us to help detune that stress, to take that component away so they can just focus on getting better. Uh, but as Kendra says, the first step of getting better is you got you to gotta reach out for help. And if you're sitting in your living room, you can't get up and walk because you're short of breath. And you're just sitting there petrified. People were scared of coming to the hospital. Yeah. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Looking at inside, what, what should we have done differently when it comes to cardiac surgery departments? Specifically, you know, what we were so done? we were oh, we uh, our leadership was very concerned that we just focus on the thoracic component of it because that was our big challenge. Yes, you do a, dis a dissection came in the door, no problem. Somebody, somebody unstable angina, uh, somebody syncopizing with AS, yes. Uh, but other than that, the real focus was the thoracic component of it. The empyeme is clearing out the chest, the daily bronx, uh, monitoring the, the pulmonary toilet, getting the people with VV ECMO uh, walking and stuff like that. There was just a lot of physical effort uh, spent in, in doing that and organizing that. And so that was our real focus, was the, thora was the thoracic component of it. Right. And, and Kendra, did the heart team discussion change? So... Um, was there more, let's say, um, people sending from surgery to PCI or to transcatheter heart valve because they could out, get out of the hospital faster? Absolutely, absolutely changed. My partners and I would have that discussion regularly because we had to be very, very critical of our ICU situation. And if we had a patient that was going to need an ICU bed or four or five days after their procedure, we needed to come up with a different strategy. And so frankly, we, again, relied on our heart team discussions that the heart teams that already existed. And we went percutaneous uh, therapies a lot more often. That means that, you know, a left main patient who had a proximal uh, left main that didn't have a lot of other disease, they're getting a stent. That is a chip shot cabbage. You know, that's the, that's the kind I love to do. And, and, you know, I think I can give the patient a really good result, but in that particular patient, they can also get a very large stent in their proximal left main, and they will go home the next day. And we had to be critical of that. And, um, you know, I think there is some equipoise, um, but certainly an aortic stenosis, it was the same conversation. When it came to um, other patient populations, we couldn't do as many trial devices one, most of our researchers were pulled by the university to do COVID trials. Mm -hmm. We were a huge COVID center for, for trials. And so our cardiac surgery researchers were pulled to go do those trials because they are employed by the university. And we're just lucky to have them in, in cardiothoracic surgery. And so, um, you know, we didn't have the bodies to do the research. And then just the manpower it takes to get a patient through an EFS trial or a novel therapy trial, and then the workup and stay in the hospital, we couldn't justify it. So most of our research was shut down other than quick post-marketing studies or things that we, you know, do regularly. Most of it we weren't able to do. So our heart team also had to add that element of how long is this patient gonna be in the hospital? How long are they gonna be in ICU bed? And if the answer was, 
you know, they're going to need four days in the ICU. We thought very critically before we proceeded with offering them a treatment. Right. Do, do you think so that heart team discussion that has changed during COVID, will that stay the same in, you know, in the coming month or year? For so, us, it's already changed. Once we were able to get um, a more more frequent beds, I no longer had to fill out a form every time I needed an anesthesia team and say how long I thought they were going to be in the ICU. And once we had the resources available, we kind of went back to what we were doing before. Um, I think the biggest thing is that some of the efficiencies, as I mentioned, not necessarily on the ICU side of things, but on can we get these patients through the system faster? Um, that's where we really saw the difference. Yeah. So do you think that there will be more PCI or TAVR because of COVID then in the future? Well, I think there are going to be more um, TAVR just because of TAVR and nobody wants a sternotomy. That's a different question. Um, But PCI, I mean, I think that you saw more PCI at our institution um, in in situations where it could have gone either way. Um, But I think that it's a healthy pendulum swing. There's a nice balance here. And I don't think it's excessive PCI or surgery for that matter. I think it's very appropriate heart team discussion. We were just in a great position where the patients could come in and we felt that we could have that discussion and have the patient get the best therapy either way. Um, And if we had to use PCI as opposed to surgery, that was fine as long as the patient got treatment. And we were very transparent about about the fact that we did think there was equipoise between the two modalities. In the situation where there wasn't, well, then that was a different conversation. But, um, you know, I don't think there's going to be more PCI at my institution. Um, I would love to hear, you know, what what's going on in New York. I think what's what's happening is I think people to go back to the really original question is there's a lot more awareness of resource utilization, particularly as as different units come back online, resources are still limited, beds are still limited. And so I think when when the heart team approaches something, that's that's part of the discussion, what can be done, particularly if there's a more less of an elective thing. And God, you know, we just don't see a lot of elective stuff now. (laughs) As you said, Ken, we're just we're just catching up from uh, being a a year of patient self neglect due to fear. So uh, I, I think there's more of a focus on that uh, to do that. And I think things that you would consider that you would get perhaps a more definitive response from a surgical approach, but at a higher, more resource usage, maybe spending you know a week and a half in the ICU or stuff like that. I think people are going to shy away from that because we don't have that because we're going to not, if we do that, we're not going to have the resources for somebody else, for another patient who's perhaps yeah. just as deserving. So I, I think there's, there's, real, there's real shift and I think it will have an impact. It's made at least people much more aware of what resources they're consuming and how they're doing it and the trade-off for consuming it. But is it also that there are actually cardiac surgery is seeing just more complex patients? So the ones that have double valve, triple valve disease, valve plus coronary disease, that surgeons in the near future will focus much more on those patients? Oh, I, I definitely agree that. Uh, I think, but this was predicted 10 years ago by our friend Vincent Gaudiani. You know, he says all cardiac surgery is going to be big, bad cardiac surgery and everything else will be, will have a, a, a better, more palatable transcatheter approach. So cardiac surgery as a whole is going to be more ugly. It makes it more challenging to train the residents, of course. That's that's the real challenge. 
and uh, you know, how do we do that? That's that's the real challenge. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at Medtronic.com slash Cardiac Exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.